0: Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 38 of my sexy music podcast, I'm on the old throwback machine. So first, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 38 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast either on the Apple Podcast app or on Stitcher or on iHeartRadio, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? Well, I going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I am also a huge 60 Music fan slash expert slash nerd. And uh, each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the '60s, and first talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks. Then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And then in the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind the song. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the studio musicians in the song, who are the band members in the group, what studio recorded that what labels released on the month and year it was released on all that is in the second part of this show. Now, before we move on with this week's episode of the podcast, i want to say that I finished up the questions for strawberry alarm clock this week. And, uh, I, I, uh, I emailed one of the original members of the group because there's one specific member in person. I'd like to talk to you for this podcast. Um, I emailed them today. I haven't heard back from yet, but I'm sure I will hear back from soon. <laughs> Um also um I wanted to m- announce that um, I'm in the process of making my own merchandise for this podcast. Um basically the reason why I'm doing making this merchandise for the show is because I'm pretty far away from getting enough listeners for, you know, a potential sponsorship. Um so I mean I want to be able to make money from the show, but I'm pretty far away from you know, um, you know, getting enough listeners for sponsorship. So, I mean, I, how, how am I going to make money in the meantime before that even happens? Well, I could create my own merchandise for the show. So basically that's what I'm doing right now. So, um, I'm in the middle of, I already have the design set up. Um, for those of you who want to know what it is specifically, it's my catchphrase for the show at this, at the thing I say at the end of every episode, keep things groovy on top of a sort of tie-dye, multicolored background, with a and by the way, the uh, the font I'm using for keep things groovy is uh, keep on is the is the font keep on trucking. You know, it gives it that sixties kind of aesthetic to it. And yeah, so um, I'm in the middle of choosing which um, online print-on-demand uh, merch store I should use probably going to go with Red Bull, but if you have any other ideas for ones I should use, definitely let me know that. Uh, you can email me at, Sam, at Um I'm just trying to find one that will give me the best deal in terms of uh, potential high royalty payout for every time someone buys an online merch item uh, from the store. So, yeah. So, um, I'm very excited uh, to have the logo done. And... To you know, get started with that uh, with that merch store, and yeah, so um, I'll let you guys know once uh, that uh, happens. Once I get the merch store all set up, it should be pretty soon though. And also, if you want to see a picture of that, so that way you guys know exactly what the the uh, the the logo looks like, uh, please follow me on Instagram at IHeartOldies, and you'll see a really really good photo of exactly what uh, the logo I'm talking about on the show looks like. Well, moving on, let's talk about the history behind this group, The Vogues, and the song, which is 5 O'Clock World, which is all from last week, too. Because it's definitely a very interesting song by a group that had a very interesting origins. Uh, you know, But really, what made this band so fascinating is really the same reason as to why The Guess Who was such an interesting group. This was, again, another one of those groups that formed in a city that you would not expect there to be a music business to come out of. See, the Vogues originated from a small suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, known as Turtle Creek. And uh, basically, one must keep in mind, Pittsburgh was very much a steel mining town at the time. And the entertainment industry was very far away from it. And most artists that originated from Pittsburgh essentially got out of there to go to where the music business was essentially at at the time, and which, by the way, was New York and L.A. and Nashville as well. And uh, Pittsburgh was also a city that had a lot of local talent. But for the most part, it was very difficult for these local talent to break out of Pittsburgh and onto national pop charts because, because there really wasn't any Pittsburgh labels that had strong enough distribution to be able to get the 45 singles, which is what the kids were buying at the time into the same record stores across the country as the big major labels based in other cities could. You know, such as Philadelphia and Cameo Parkway. Uh, you know, that label, and there was a huge label in Philadelphia. And uh, New York with Atlantic and RCA and Columbia and, you know, L.A. with Reprise and Capital and stuff like that. Um, very few groups that came out of Pittsburgh, with the exception of the folks, had success being Distributed by a label based in their home city, um, just and just to prove to you that, um, w- another big 60s artist that originated from Pittsburgh was, for a short period of time, signed to Roulette Records. Um, and by the way, Roulette Records was a big New York label that was definitely not based in Pittsburgh. And even though his first few hits were recorded in Pittsburgh, he later wound up moving to New York and spent the rest of his career cutting hits in that city. But this band, the Vogue's, basically built everything from the ground up in Pittsburgh. And they also were a vocal group that managed to have big success in the middle of the British invasion. Like, kind of after vocal, I mean, the early 60s, I mean, there were a ton of vocal groups. But, you know, and once the once the Beatles came on and once these British bands started coming in, you know, the vocal groups didn't, weren't really as common as they were in the late 50s and early 60s. There were only four American vocal groups during the height of the British Invasion that could really compete with those guys. And by the way, I'm talking in the years 1964 and 65. Um, Jay and the Americans, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, the New Beats, and Lil' Anthony and the Imperials. And while all those groups came from places where there definitely was an active, expanding music business with several different record labels and recording studios, and I'm specifically talking about New York and Nashville... The Vogue's came from an area where there really was only one professional recording studio, and if there were any labels, there would would be these small, little, dinky, independent labels that for the most part only produced regional hits, um, songs that made it to the top ten on local stations in certain cities, but not in every major city in the U.S. But the label that they were on was able to get them onto the pop charts And in this episode, I'm going to talk about the story behind how they got their first hit record and what might have inspired the songwriter to write the song, which is 5 O'Clock World, and also how the song hit home for the rest of the members of the band and how they are also able to get themselves out of Pittsburgh and into other cities to record in as well. But first, let's talk about the origins of the group. As I mentioned earlier, this group was originally from Pittsburgh, PA in a small suburb of pittsburgh called turtle creek and the original members of the group were bill Perquet on lead vocals and hugh Geyer and don miller and chuck blasco now this is kind of interesting because we've never done a vocal group on this podcast before okay so you know these guys were singers but they didn't write any songs and they were just they didn't play any instruments so you know, uh, the the music was played by studio musicians, you know. So that's kind of how the vocal group kind of set up work. And the group originally got their start in the late 50s, back when vocal groups were pretty much everywhere, at least in rock and roll. I mean, and also at this time, they were originally called the Valleys They weren't called the Vogue's yet, and we'll get into that uh, later on in this podcast. Um, they released their first single in 1958, and an early supporter of the, the group was a DJ named Porky Chedwick. Uh, he got them gigs with the groups as the Platters and the Drifters and the Dells. And, uh, you know, this is like early 50s, by the way. So this is when these groups are huge. You know, real hot commodities at this time, for sure. And they also got some pretty good local promotion on some TV and radio stations based in Pittsburgh. And their first single got picked up for national distribution by Coral Records. But soon after they released that single, the band graduated from high school and half of them got to to the army, and half of them went to college. And this was like in 1960. And about five years later, once they all got out of the army and graduated from college, which, by the way, was like 64, 65, um, they got back together, and they were able to salvage some money together. By the way, they managed to get $100 put together, which was a lot of money back then. And now that the equivalent to that would be like eight hundred bucks, which is insane to think about, uh, to produce a demo, and uh, you know they were able to get to get all of Nick Kenshi, who was a Pittsburgh-based producer, owned a recording studio there called Gateway Studios. Um, by the way, Nick Kenshi, before he worked with the Vogue's, uh, previously produced Lou Christie and was able to secure him a record deal with Roulette Records, which resulted in hits such as "The Gypsy Cried" and Two Faced. of I." Both the songs were also cut kind at of Gateway Studios, in uh, Pittsburgh. And uh, he took the group under his wing and signed them to his own Pittsburgh based label, Cohen C Records. Um, you know, after he heard those demos, he liked the sound of the group, and that's how they, how they got signed to Cohen C Records. Um, after he heard the group's original demo tape, like what he heard, uh, their first single off of Cohen C was a cover of a Patula Clark song that was a flop for her originally called You're the One. Um, You're the one, she put out a single didn't really do anything in America. And the song was recorded at Gateway Studios in Pittsburgh. And the group originally put their lead and backing vocals on a backing track played by a local Pittsburgh band called the Racket Squad. The lead singer for that band was a guy named Sonny DiNuzio. The producer for the track thought the original lead singer's voice wasn't cutting it so he got the Vogue's lead singer Bill Burkett to sing lead on the song. And if you're wondering exactly how the group got their name, when You're the One came out, by the way, You're the One was a top ten hit. It was, it, it was really huge. Um, out of the, once One of the group's members' wives told them that the song was being played on the radio immediately after she heard it, and she let them know that they were being called the Vogue's, even though the group didn't have a name you know, um, so, when he, f- when he found this out, by the way, he, he I'm talking about Hugh Geyer's wife, um, he later found out the band actually got their second name, keep in mind, like I said earlier, they're originally called the Airs, from their manager, who owned a separate club in Pittsburgh, known as the Vogue Terrace, um, it was a pretty well-known, you know, club, where he had people like Ginger Rogers in, but, You know, this is kind of before their heyday, but that's where they got their name originally. But now that I got their first hit out of the way, let's talk about this specific song and what happened after they hit a big with this specific song. Okay, so I hope some of you who have been listening to this two-part episode were paying attention. But if you weren't, I said earlier that this song was a very personal one for the person that wrote it and the members of the group that did it. Well, to explain to you what made it so personal for them, to put it bluntly to you, all the members of the Vogue's had day jobs when this song became a hit. Um, two of the original members of the group worked in a uh, factory. And uh, and I know it's, it's like, that's pretty amazing to know because, you know, you literally sound, the guy lead singer of the song literally sounds like he worked in the factory. And it was the song, it was this song that allowed them to quit their day jobs and to become full-time performing musicians. And this was definitely a ris- risky thing for them to do especially since one of the original members of the group's wife just had a baby, and again, I'm talking about Hugh Geyer, but that certainly did not stop the band from following their dreams to become a full-time performing group. So as you can see, they are able to perform the song with authentic- such authenticity, even though they didn't write it, because they very much lived the song's lyrics at the time. But now that you know the personal connection between this song and the group that did it let's talk about the behind the scenes details on this song because this is actually the first song that that they ever recorded with the backing track that was not recorded in pittsburgh see the song itself was was a product of nashville studio musicians and writers and producers and since we haven't done nashville song on my podcast let's let's talk a little bit about it but i'll go more in depth with it when i do another nashville song by another nashville artist see Right from the very beginning, Nashville was a city that was specialized in country music. And the country music was very dirty and ethnic and gritty at the time, the 50s, with, you know, real hardcore southern accents combined with fiddles and banjos and steel guitars. But as the 50s turned into the 60s, the city decided to clean up country music. And and they they said, look it we want to make sure that this music can be accessible for pop audiences. We don't want to alienate people that, you know, are really into the pop artists from that era. We want to make sure that they can like this stuff too. So we got to make country music more something that, you know, pop people that in that were into pop music at the time could like too. So they decided to make it more palatable to pop audiences, and they decided to uh, incorporate a lot of the things that, Arrangers in New York and Los Angeles were doing, you know, by including rush strings and percussion and backing vocals into the songs with more complex emotional arrangements, and uh, you know Nashville decided to incorporate that into a lot of their own songs to create what was known at the time as a Nashville sound, or and that later morphed into country Now, uh, it was basically the first incarnation. country and pop music. It was basically like country pop, you know, at the time. And this genre was created in Nashville. Artists that were well known for that genre included Brenda Lee and Roy Orbison and Skeeter Davis. But moving on to the song, by the time the song came out, which is 1965, Nashville was facing heavy competition from other cities and states, including New York and L.A., and of course the British Invasion in terms of the pop charts, and also Bakersfield too for country music. So they had to completely reinvent what they were most well-known for in the early 60s, and artists such as Bobby Goldsboro and the New Beats were artists that were on the forefront of the newly revamped Nashville sound, which is more along the lines of Motown in L.A., and less the countrified pop sound they were most well-known for in the early 60s and the late 50s too. And this song was recorded at a landmark recording studio in Nashville that is still open today as a museum called RCA Studio B. Numerous big-name artists have recorded there include Roy Orbison, Elvis Presley, and just to give you a little background information on the on, on this track, the song originally started out as a two-track demo produced by a, guy, a Nashville-based producer named Tony Moon. And the song was written by Alan Reynolds. Now... What might what I'm not really sure exactly what inspired him to write this song, but I do know that Alan at the time was working in a bank when he wrote this song. So obviously this song had to be inspired by his own real experiences because he, you know, was working a regular day job when he wrote this song. So that definitely makes sense. Right. Um, By the way, he'd also later want later go on to manage the career of Garth Brooks. And he, the interesting thing about this is that he originally sang lead on the song, on the demo version. And, uh, by the way, the musicians on this recording, which, by the way, were all on one track because it was a two-track demo, his vocals and the, and the, and the musicians, included Ship Young playing the acoustic 12-string guitar and Matt Gaiden playing the electric guitar. I believe he was playing all the droning low notes in the song. And Bill Purcell doing the descending piano lines. He was playing piano on the song and Norvin me on bass, and Tommy and motto on drums. Now basically what happens is that the two-track demo was sent to Pittsburgh, and the Vogue's put their lead and backing vocals on their song, and their own Pittsburgh's Gateway Studios, in with Nick Kenshi producing the session. So the backing track was recorded in Nashville, that track was sent to Pittsburgh, and the Vogue's basically put their own vocals on the track in their own studios in Pittsburgh. They were also dissatisfied with the drums in the song, so they got a local Pittsburgh-based drummer to play on the song, overdubbing on top of the original Dummer's track. And by the way, his name is Rich Engler. Now, before we end this podcast, I want to do a quick recap on what happened after the song came out. It was released in October of 1965, and it made into the top ten in December of 1965, January of 1966. And while the group had some successful follow-up singles, Magic Town and Land of Milk and Honey, which was also recorded in Nashville, uh, the hits all of a sudden stopped for the group, probably because they were still assigned to a small, and dingy little Pittsburgh label that didn't have strong enough distribution. And from 1966 to sometime in 1968, they were not having that many hits, and it wasn't until their label had leased their recordings to Reprise Records, which was a label owned by Warner Brothers, and I believe it was also founded by Frank Sinatra too. Uh, and the group went into the studio to record "Turn Around, Look at Me" in L. A. That the band got back up into the, in the top ten of the pop charts. So you know, their 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 label leasing their recordings to Reprise, you know, and them being able to record "Turn Around, Look at Me" in L. A. was ultimately got them out of Pittsburgh. And you know, and they also had some good follow up singles after that too, like. Um, like My Special Angel and No Not Much and a couple of others, too. Um, The band eventually became a Vegas oldies act after the 60s ended with no more hit singles and a revolving door of singers going through it. And they later reunited in the 2000s with the original lead singer, Bill Burkett, but he just passed away in 2018, and now a completely different version of the band with no original members is currently touring, which leads me to think that one of the original members lost the trademarks of the group's name. I'm pretty sure Chuck Blasco is touring with his versions of the his, his version of the Vogue's. you know. But I'm not sure if any original guys are in that version of the band. But he's yet heading his own version too. But regardless, Five O'clock World will go on to be used as a theme for the Drew Carey Show, and it was also used in the movie Good Morning Vietnam. So to conclude this podcast, I wanted to touch up on a couple of things. One. Uh, hopefully you guys remember this one. The Vogues are originally from Pittsburgh, a really small, you know, uh, dinky little city with, with not a whole lot of music position too. You know, the band could personally relate to the song because they all had day jobs and so could the person that wrote it. You know, so they had a personal connection with the song's lyrics. And they also became a vocal group that managed to become huge after the British invasion. They also managed to carve their own little niche doing the Letterman kind of songs in the late 60s you know, when psychedelic rock and, you know, really hearted soul music was also starting to become popular as well. So that concludes part two of episode number 38 of my sexy music podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some really cool, interesting facts about the Vogue's and Five O'Clock World that you never knew before, and uh, I teach you a lot about them, uh, please email me at at samltwillieicloud.com um, you can also follow me on Instagram at iheartoldies and check out more of my original music at sam dot net. Now, um, I'm hoping to for the next episode of this podcast to be an interview with one of the original members of Strawberry Alarm Clock. Now, um, one of them did get back to me. Um, you know, I'm just trying to get reach the other person who I really want to talk to. Um, you know, so hopefully I'll hear back from him this week and you know, the next episode will be that, um, in the meantime, I'll think of another song and artist to do, uh, for the podcast, so, and yeah, so, um, and like I said before, if you want to see the new merch logo that I got from this podcast, uh, again, it's the catchphrase of the show, and, and, uh with a cool little, um, rainbow background, uh, kind of a tie-dye kind of a thing, um, you know, you can find that on my Instagram, so, Either way, so I'm Sam Williams, and uh, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Till next week, please keep in. <laughs>